Welcome to A Rock and a Hard Place, the podcast that explores why minerals matter, their importance to society, and the role they will play in the low-carbon future. I'm your host, Thomas Hale, a graduate student exploring the mineral security nexus at the University of Delaware in the Minerals, Materials, and Society program. Join me as I speak with leading experts in the field of critical minerals to discuss some of the most pressing challenges facing society and learn more about their experience working in this emerging space. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode two of my conversation with Hugh Brown, a best-selling documentary photographer in the mining sector. So I want to continue this conversation about some of your experiences. So you've had an extensive amount of field work and travel experience. How does traveling to all these communities and mine sites help inform you about the real challenges that we face in sourcing raw commodities? What is one of the major issues that you see across all the various places that you've traveled? Are there any issues that you see that extend across all the different places you travel? Are there issues that are relative to all artisanal mining communities or they're all nuanced? I mean, how do we source through the nuance, but also try to understand artisanal mining as a sector, as kind of a holistic sector? Is that even possible to do? There's definitely commonalities. The big question I ask is, why are we focused on artisanal miners all of a sudden? You know, let's say it's been the last 10 or 15 years, whatever it's been. The question is, why are we suddenly focused on those? And let me put forward a hypothesis. Frank Justra, the Canadian gold billionaire, put a number out, I think it was last year or the, sort of the year before, that in 1990, there was twice as much gold discovered around the world as there was in the entire 10-year period between 2010 and 2020. I went back and had a look at the copper numbers in the same period, and they're roughly the same. So the takeaway is that major ore bodies are getting harder to find. And we're finding less and less of those as the years go on. There's basically only five locations where the major ore bodies are left to be found. That's the polar regions, the major wilderness regions. So think the jungles of Central Africa, the Amazon, Alaska, those sort of places. Marine environments on the ocean floor, outer space, so places like the asteroid belt. And then you've got the third world. And of those five locations, the third world is by far the easiest of those locations to, to explore. And it just seems to be coincidental to me that many of the large ore bodies that have been discovered or are in the process of being discovered in the third world just happen to be where those are mined by artisanal miners. So you've got this convergence between the needs of the big companies, which is towards finding new ore bodies, and then you've got many of those ore bodies apparently being sat upon by the world's artisanal miners. And that for me is is a key issue that that needs to be sort of explored more and it's not. And there seems to be a lot of focus on regulation of these artisanal miners by, you know, as I say, the OECD, the EU, the US. But what is the purpose and what is the the motivation between us seeking to regulate those miners more? The next question is, or the next point is that I have no issue with us putting every single artisanal miner around the world out of work. No problems at all. The caveat is is that if we want to do that, then we've got to have alternatives for them to go to. And the only way you're going to generate alternatives for these artisanal miners to go elsewhere is by foreign direct investment in the world's poorest countries around the world. And we've demonstrated over the last 100 years we've got no interest in facilitating that. So at the moment, artisanal mining is a major employer of people around the world. It has a huge multiplier internally within communities. Most of the money stays within communities. It provides sort of upward skills development, you know, upward skills development pathways for them to go that they wouldn't get if they 
in the absence of artisanal mining. So there are issues that need to be dealt with. One of those is increasing technological advancement, increasing mechanisation. There's a, you know, there's more mechanisation being brought to many of these artisanal mining places, and the problem with that is that that then sort of results in greater environmental destruction. And so they're sort of then moving out of the, the realms of being artisanal miners to sort of being more small-scale miners. And that's a really, really difficult challenge to try and solve. So there's a lot of people, and you brought this up in the first part, that work on critical mineral issues. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed that even just in the last six months, a year to two years, there's been a huge surge in critical mineral experts. Many of these people seeming to have backgrounds or relationships to the oil and gas or coal sectors, which I think is really interesting. Um, But as you noted, not many of these people have ever traveled to these locations, yet are making policy that are impacting so many of these communities. Well, now we have to understand that for most of the public, it's very unlikely that they can go and travel to some of these countries. For politicians or State Department individuals, they only have a certain amount of time to go and visit. But how can people become more connected with these human dynamics on the ground when we're discussing these challenges in metal mining and critical materials, if they can't necessarily go and spend weeks at a time, like maybe it's working with experts, talking to people that have been on the ground, but really how can some of these people engage when we know it's important to do it, but time is very limited to do that? Yeah, that's a really difficult question because if you look at all of those involved in the decision-making, the policy-making, the yeah, ninety-five percent of those are living off the system as well. So, you know, you look at, say, the responsible sourcing sector or due diligence guidance sector, and it's a billion-dollar or more industry now. And if you look at ninety-five percent of the spend, ninety-five percent of that spend is going on developed world consultants and NGOs and whoever else. Now, maybe five percent of that spend is hitting the ground. If you're lucky, if that was a charity, and ninety-five percent of the spend was going on admin, we'd shut it down straight away. So, everyone is doing well out of the system except the artisanal miners who receive virtually no benefit of the spend and then have to, to suffer with the, the rubbish policy decisions that are being made by most of those who have never even seen an artisanal miner. Do you think that since COVID-19 and this push for virtual engagements, Zoom conferencing and other methodologies, do you see that there's a possibility maybe not for the immediate travel on site, but for some of these other virtual mechanisms to engage better with these communities and possibly work with local NGOs and people on the ground to bring them to places to engage with policymakers? And if so, if that is an opportunity, do you see that happening currently? Or do you still see that there seems to be a talking over the people that are the artisanal miners and then the U.S. government just going to the heads of state and other countries and not really talking to the people? It was actually funny. I was just listening to something before I came on and they were talking about, you know, it wasn't just the US talking over the people on the ground. It was the US talking over heads of state as well. Look, there's definitely going to be a role for technology, but at the end of the day, there's no substitute for pressing the flesh and having boots on the ground. It's just, you don't get the smells, you don't get the sound, you don't sort of see dangerous rock overhangs that might not be visible on a TV screen. It's the same thing, you know. It's like meeting someone in person versus meeting someone online. You don't get the true sense of the vibe of that person until you shake their head. Oh, no, and I agree. And I think in many of these cultures, that's very necessary to build relationships and trust. And I think that's, in my opinion, one of the main reasons that there needs to be this push for more serious long-term conversations about critical minerals 
and why minerals are important in everyday life than these kind of superficial motivation responses of trying to make money out of these communities or getting involved and then leaving. There has to be more of a long-term relationship, a long-term investment in many of these communities. And one of the big critiques that I have, especially of some of our diplomatic departments here in the United States, is that in many cases you'll have, especially in a country that has a lot of conflict, your diplomatic staff may be only stationed there for a year or two years. And then in two years, they have to get a new person. And so when you meet these communities, and when we were working with artisanal miners and talking to communities in the Congo, they had switched out four, five, six different people, and they can't keep up with who's the person they need to be contacting in the US. And that helps nobody when you're trying to build a long-term serious plan on how do you, you know, resolve some of these issues. The other thing around critical minerals, which you and I talked about the other day, to me, the geopolitics of it are the only game in town because what really concerns me is the lack of critical thought by, I think I said at the start, by academia, by consultants, by all of these people that are employed in the industry that are failing to challenge the status quo. And we've seen in other areas over the last few years where this has happened, but my concern is that the systems that have been put in place by the institutions that we trust, and you know, I've mentioned the OECD, I've mentioned you know, the EU and, and others, I don't trust that the motive behind the development of those systems or the implementation of those systems by the people at the very top, and I'm not talking about the majority of people, I'm talking about the people that pull the strings. I don't trust the motivations of those people. So, And we've seen wars fought over critical minerals. We've seen the US assassinate two Congolese presidents between 1961 and 2001. The latter is fairly recent. So we've seen what people will do over critical minerals. So you have to assume, unless it's proven otherwise, that the motivations are not good. Unfortunately, no one's challenging that. And it's the critical minerals that, you know, wars are going to be fought over it potentially in the 21st century that we really need to be paying attention to. So to come back to the human component here and the vilification of many of these communities from outsiders, how have the communities that you've met with, we talked a little about this in part one, but what are some of their responses to you when they may have seen or on their cell phones received information that the world around them is kind of vilifying them and looking down on them? I mean, what are the conversations that they have with you when it comes to calls to remove their minerals from supply chains and to kind of eliminate? I mean, what are these people thinking? when you're meeting with them? I haven't seen so much of that in my travels. We haven't sort of talked about that so much, but they're certainly conscious of the demonization of what they do. And in my own work, I've worked in some difficult places. Some might say very difficult places. And sometimes you're wondering whether you're being looked at through the scope of a rifle, for example. But I deal with these people just by laying it on the table. I say, this is what I'm about. I'm, I'm not here to you know, poop on your nest, for want of a better term. And I build trust just through human interactions. If people don't want to be photographed, I don't photograph them. If there's someone greater I want to photograph and I can't photograph them, bummer, I still don't photograph them. So that's a challenge, you know. But as I say, I haven't seen so much of that in my travels in terms of people being that familiar with the policy and the regulatory environment going on. No, I mean, an interesting. Thank you for that. So as someone who is passionate about the humans that are involved in the sector, what do you think the next steps are? I mean, we've had this conversation, we've talked a little bit about individual steps, but what should we be doing to solve these challenges that sometimes seem very immense? 
you know, we have a lot of coming decades of metal demand and supply constraints, but what are some meaningful next steps from a conversation and an education and a policy perspective to changing the tide on many of these challenges that we experience? I feel really strongly we should be backing right off and getting our own houses in order because our own countries are not perfect. Our own countries are a mess. And who are we to be lecturing the world's poorest on how they should be doing things? The second thing is that until we solve the geopolitics and we bring the geopolitics out of the shadows and into the we shine the light into the darkness, the reality is that any moves that we take in artisanal mining in a policy sense or in an interventionist sense are, are always going to be subjugated to the geopolitics and the needs and the needs of the major powers for critical minerals. So if the US or China or whoever else have to go in and take those minerals, they will go in and take those minerals. Nothing will get in the way. And even though people might think that we're doing good things, it's like putting a coat of paint on a house with rotten foundations. The foundations are still rotten. The building's still going to fall down. And I know that sounds negative, but it's a reality because until you solve the geopolitics and you bring morality into the geopolitics, I mean, what hope have we got? I don't don't see a hope. It's really unfortunate. And the worst thing is the artisanal miners suffer even more by well-intentioned on some quarters interventions by people that are not going to be able to do anything. So last question, and I ask this of all my guests, in just a few sentences, if you were to meet someone on the side of the street who knew nothing about minerals, nothing about mining, nothing about artisanal miners, what would you tell them if they asked you, why do minerals matter? Why are we even talking about these issues? Simple. Everything we have on the planet is mined or grown. That's that simple. We don't mine. We don't have houses. We don't have cars. We don't have computers. We don't have phones. Everything that we have is mined or grown. All right. Well, thank you so much, Hugh, for coming on the podcast and having this timely conversation about artisanal and small-scale mining and the role of photography in telling stories that need to be looked at when exploring critical mineral extraction and mining challenges. I look forward to future conversations and hope to have you back on the podcast in the future. Until next time, I'm your host, Thomas Hale, and thanks for joining us on another insightful discussion of A Rock in a Hard Place. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. Be sure to follow me on LinkedIn and check out our website at Mineral Choices for more content. If you would like to be a guest on our podcast or contribute to our website, then please reach out to me. We love hearing from you, so do get in touch. We'll see you next time.